Father, we thank you for your incredible grace that you have shown to us in Christ. God, we thank you for this privilege of being your people. We thank you for the privilege that we can come before you now in prayer, not as sinners under your wrath, but as beloved children coming to a loving Father who cares for us, who knows our needs, who knows our weaknesses, and who is working for our good. Father, I ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, help me as I speak, that I would speak uh, not with my own thoughts and opinions, but I would speak your word faithfully. Lord, help all of us as we hear that we would be attentive to your word, that your Holy Spirit would help us to receive the word with joy and to know how we ought to apply it in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to bring to you greetings from our church in Siliguri and from my family who's unable to be with us. Uh, we are thankful for you, for your partnership in the gospel, uh, for fellowship with you, and it has been such a blessing and a joy for me this week uh, to share fellowship with all of you. As we've been uh, at church camp, we've been looking at a topic, uh, the gospel-centered life. What is the gospel how does it apply to our individual lives as believers? What does the gospel do? What does the gospel look like lived out in our family? And how does the gospel apply not only to our individual lives, not only to our evangelism, not only to our families, but how does the gospel apply to the church? And I want to just continue with this theme this morning as we consider God's word in the book of 1 Peter. So as we, as we read, I just want to read for us again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we'll look, we'll, we'll try to observe a little bit of the, the background, just briefly consider what Peter's saying to us in verses 1 through 8, but then we're going to spend the majority of our time really digging in and focusing on verses 9 through 12. So I'm going to read this for us one more time. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you 
as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we look at this passage, Peter has several encouragements for us. Who are we? What are we like? And then we're really going to dig in. What is our identity and what does that mean for how we live now? First, Peter speaks to us and he uses an image. And this may be, especially for some of us who are a little bit older, may consider ourselves to be more mature, a little bit difficult. He says, like what? Verse 2. Newborn infants. I'm not speaking to you like somebody who knows everything, who's grown and wise, but like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I have four children. I've gotten to talk to you, many of you, about my children, my family. Uh, My youngest is a daughter. She's six months old. And every two, three hours, she gets hungry. She needs to eat, right? So she's six months old. If I say, okay, she's hungry now, I'll give her some chicken curry. Will that be good for her? Will that be beneficial? No, that's no good. Why? Yeah, she's a baby. She can't handle it. But there is something that's good for her that will help her to grow to be strong and healthy. That's milk. And that milk is exactly what God has designed for that baby to grow in strength. It has everything that she needs. She doesn't need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. This is the one thing that she needs. He's saying you, just like a newborn infant, long for this milk, thirst for it, hunger for it. What is for us the pure spiritual milk? What grows us into strength and maturity? What grows us in salvation, as he says here? This is a question you can answer. It's God's Word. Now, if my baby starts crying, and I say, "Ah, just leave it. We gave her milk yesterday. She's fine. That's That's not enough. A baby needs this milk every few hours. Some of us, though, in our own lives, you know, if I came to your house Tuesday morning and asked you, oh, you know, what did you read in the Bible? I, you know, I didn't, I haven't read my Bible today. On Sunday, I heard, I read the Bible, you know, we were at church, and next Sunday, or maybe on Thursday I'll go, and I'll hear the Bible again. I'll study the Bible again. Some of us, if we're honest, may do that. That may be what a week looks like for us. But if I come to your house on Tuesday, and I say, you know, have you, have you eaten yet? How are you doing? And you say, no, you know, I ate on Sunday. I'll eat again on Thursday. It's fine. None of us are going to say that, right? This is for us more than food. This is the pure spiritual milk that we need to grow into salvation. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have experienced by God's grace the new birth, God's mercy towards you in Christ, you'll have this thirst, this hunger just like a baby, that I need, I want this pure spiritual milk of the Word. 
We can dull our senses. We can dull this hunger and thirst. But if God has made us new, this thirst is in us. We may need to, at times, encourage each other to, to whet this appetite, to go after this thirst. But this is in us if we have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. Now again, we see in verse 5, he, he speaks to us using a different image. He says, I've spoken to you as newborn infants. Now I'm speaking to you as living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house. This is the church. I'm not the church. If I have one stone or one brick and I lay it down and I say this is a building, that's of no use. To build a building, you need many bricks. Only when you have all the bricks together in the right place do you have a building. God is taking us like living stones and building us together in the local church into a spiritual house. He's giving us this opportunity, this command to gather together, to be in right relationship with each other, all the pieces fitting together to make this spiritual house. And he says, this honor, this is verse 7, this honor is for you who believe. So all of these things that we're going to be talking about, Peter is speaking to believers. I'll be speaking to you this morning as believers. But he notes what happens to unbelievers. When they hear this word, they stumble on it. Even over this, God is sovereign, as we see in verse 8. Some of you this morning, even as we look at God's word, even as we consider the good news of the gospel, some of you know you're in your heart far from God. When Peter is speaking to believers here, you know you're not part of that group. If that is you this morning, I want you to consider these truths that we're talking about. Consider this message. And then afterward, take the opportunity. Ask somebody around you. Talk to a friend. Talk to whoever brought you here. Talk to Sam or Arpan. Talk to anybody here and see what, what, what would it mean for me to pursue this? What would it mean for me to follow after Jesus in this way? So this is, this is the background. Now we're going to really spend our time in verses 9 through 12. So we need to understand, we need to get the context, because when we come to verse 9, what's the first word? But. So, we can't start with a but. We need to understand what's coming before. The honor is for you who believe. Those who don't believe stumble over the word. This is to them a message of destruction. But you, what's true of you now through God's word? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who you are now. When God's word speaks to us as believers, he says, when I save you, I make you one new people. This is glorious. This is a mystery. This is something that doesn't make sense to any of the people around us says you are a race, a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're one new thing together through the cross. Look around you, left and right. Thank you. Wonderful. Some of you are doing that. Thank you. Now, when we look around, in the eyes of the world, we're not one people. You can look left and right before you and behind you, and you're going to see Tamil and Uriah and Bihari and Telugu and Angrezi and whatever. We're not one people in the eyes of the world. Why on earth would people like that gather together and more than just occasionally being in the same place in this, at the same time, actually choose to always be gathering together? What business does a Punjabi have with a Tamil? None. But that's not who we are. You aren't all of those things. You instead are a chosen race, a new chosen race. What's that race like? A royal priesthood. Now, whether you look at the history of Israel or whether you look at the society around us, these are two different groups. There's people who rule, from which tribe come the kings and the rulers, and there's the priests who serve in the temples and do this thing. These are two different groups, right? You're not one or the other of these groups. You're something new and you're something better. You are a royal priesthood. God's given you authority in this world as people made in his image to rule and he's given you authority to offer sacrifices before him, to serve as priests and representative from his behalf. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We as this new people of God are called to be holy, to be marked by holiness in our personal lives and in our fellowship together. And we are a people for his own possession. This is who we are. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people. This is what we just considered. You look around. This is not one people. One time when we lived in the world, one time when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were not a people. But now, you are the people of God. Once, this is why we're God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That mercy that God shows to us as his chosen people is what makes us into a people for God's own possession. So the first thing I really want you to, to remember, to consider, to hold on to is if you are in Christ, you are chosen. You are God's new people. This is who you are. This is your identity. More than your language, more than your nationality, more than your tribe or your state. Those things are 
nothing. Instead, your identity is that you are the chosen people of God. The second thing that we see here is that we're chosen for a purpose. This is what we see in the second half of verse 9. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God shows us this grace and then he gives us something to do with it. You're chosen, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, so that you would proclaim these things. You would proclaim the excellencies, the goodness, the mighty deeds of the one who has transferred us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As you guys have been studying through the book of Exodus, these things are the fulfillment of what had happened centuries before. God says to Israel, you're my chosen priesthood, or you're my chosen people, a royal priesthood. This wasn't fulfilled in Israel at the time of the Exodus. God shows his mighty acts of salvation in rescuing them out of slavery and bringing them into a nation, giving them houses and cities and fields that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant. He rescues them and gives them something new. All of this, though, is pointing forward to what we see here. God has rescued us out of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, as we see in Colossians. He has brought us into his marvelous light. And he's done this with a purpose, so that we would proclaim his goodness, so that we would share with others God's mighty acts of salvation, so that we would talk about the grace that we've received with people who've not yet received grace. Sometimes, when we think about the gospel, or perhaps when we try and share the gospel with others, we talk about the gospel as a message about us. This is good news because God loved me, because God loved you. The gospel is about me and you. In God's incredible mercy, we receive unspeakable, uncountable blessing, limitless, priceless gifts through Jesus. But more than that, there's something else. The gospel isn't about me and what God's done for me. The gospel is about God. It's for His glory. A few days ago, we considered... Uh, Romans chapter 3, and we see all of these acts that God's done, the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, and then he says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Why did God save? Why did Jesus die in our place? Why did he offer sacrifice, taking the punishment for the sins that we deserve and offering us, pleasing the Father, crediting us with his righteousness? Why? To demonstrate God's righteousness. He says, these things have happened so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are chosen. We're a new people. We're a people who have received grace and mercy that we didn't deserve. And God has done this 
not primarily for our good, though we receive unspeakable benefit, but primarily for His glory. The gospel is for the glory of God. I think for some of us there's a temptation in hearing that, like, okay, maybe I see it there, but I feel like the gospel should be about me and God's love and the good things for me. If it's for His glory, then, you know, I don't know, what am I getting out of it? This year, you know, G20's here in India, all over here and there, there's meetings happening. Next year, G20 meetings will be in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. Now imagine with me, if next year in Brazil, there's, as part of G20 meetings, there's meetings about technology. And the president of Google and Microsoft and Apple, everyone's gonna be there for one month for these meetings in some hi-fi resort. And Infosys comes and says, Justin, you know, like Tim Cook's gonna be there from Apple and Satya Nadella from Microsoft, all these guys are gonna be there and we want you to go and represent Infosys to be part of these meetings, to be with these guys and to, to represent us and we're gonna send your family We'll give you a big bonus. You guys are going to stay with this resort, at this resort with these guys and do that for one month. Sounds good, right? <laughs> so, if your boss says that to you, you're going to come home and you're going to talk to Priyanka. You won't believe this incredible thing that we're getting, right? You're not going to say, I don't know. This sounds like this is just for you guys, right? I'm just going to represent emphasis. What's... What am I getting out of the deal? This, I, it's a good deal for you, you get me, but what about me? I'm just going to represent you. This isn't for me, right? Of course you won't say that, right? This is an honor, it's a blessing, it's a huge privilege you get to go and be part of these meetings, stay at some nice resort. It's an honor and a privilege. Much more than that, much bigger than that, this honor of sonship that we've received through the gospel, though it is ultimately for the glory of God, for the praise of his righteousness, it in no way devalues the privileges that we've received, that it's about him. In fact, there's greater honor here. God's using broken and foolish and worthless people like me, like you, for his glory in this world. It is a privilege and an honor of which I'm not worthy to stand before you today and to share God's word. It's a privilege and an honor of which none of us is worthy to share with friends and family members and neighbors about the grace of God that's been shown to us in Jesus. God has not only saved us, if he wanted, if this was God's will, as soon as we heard the gospel, as soon as we believed, he could have immediately taken us straight to heaven. He's chosen instead to leave us here as his ambassadors, as his messengers, he, and he's left us here for a purpose, and that purpose is his glory. This is why God made you. This is why God saved you. So proclaim to others what the Lord has done for you. If you love God, if you love people around you, share this good news with them. You may feel, some of us 
may feel like, oh, you know, like I feel like to share with this person, I just have to get everything, you know, right, exactly right. I have to have perfect answers to all of their questions, and that fear can cripple us and lead us to never say anything. One preacher has said that as we go and preach, we're beggars talking to other beggars, telling them where to find bread. We're not going as people with all the answers. It may be that they ask a question, and you can actually serve them and say, like, wow, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't have a ready response. Let's go to God's Word and look together. I know. I know that there is an answer, but I don't have it. You don't need to go as someone with all the answers, but go in love and humility. Go as a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. God has chosen us. He has saved us. He's made us one new people as the people of God. Now we don't come as people say, you know, oh, well, okay, all of the Tamil Christians are going to be here and all of the Muslim background Christians are going to be here, and all of the Hindu background Christians are going to be here, and all of everyone's just going to be in their own little pockets of people just like them. God's done something much better and wiser and bigger, and He says, I'm going to bring all of my children together. We're one new chosen people for God's own possession, and He has saved us with a purpose. This purpose is that we would proclaim, that we would share the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's chosen us and he's chosen us and saved us and bought us for a purpose. Now, there's another work that we need to do. We need to remember our home. We need to remember our home. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Let's just, one more time quickly, look around the room. One more question here. See if you can spot a foreigner. <laughs> Me? Even in my courtyard? <laughs> You're not wrong, but you're not fully right yet either. We need to remember, home is not what is on your passport or your voter ID. If you are in Christ, your citizenship now is in heaven. Home is not Chennai or Bangalore or U.S. or wherever. Home is heaven. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as foreigners, remember, believe, remind yourselves and one another, this isn't home. Mysore isn't home. When I say that Mysore isn't home, I don't mean that Chennai is home. I mean this world is now not our home. We were just last two nights... We're in Kotagiri. Another reminder of 
my foreign citizenship was that we had to stay in a different place, Sam and I, right? So it was a nice place, close by, and had comfortable beds, warm blankets. Now, if I said one day, you know, we get there, we see the room, and I said, hey, Sam, I need to, I'm just going to go for a walk. I need to pick up some things. Maybe he's thinking soap or toothpaste or something. If I go, and then I come back with a truckload, and I say, you know, I noticed this room, it didn't have fridge, it didn't have sofa, it didn't have these things, so I just bought and brought. What's he going to think of me? What are you guys going to think of me? We're staying for two nights here in Kotagiri, and I bought for the room, fridge, and sofa, and everything. Good move? Ridiculous. This isn't your home. Why are you buying a new fridge and sofa and all these things? Right? It's easy if we're there two nights to remember this is not our home. It's harder when we're here 15 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years to remember this is not our home. It doesn't mean that you can't buy a fridge and sofa and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. But don't, don't, live, don't live in a way that says, this is my home. I bought this land. I built this building. I have this right, and now I'm going to make this my home. This is not your home. If you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. Don't grow weary in this. Don't forget where you are. It's easy for me to remember here that I'm a foreigner. All the time, people treat me in a certain way, people speak to me in a certain way. I don't have attire, I can't do this and that thing. It's easy for me to remember. It's harder for you to remember. Remind each other, this is not your home. I don't care what your attire says, this is not home. Don't grow weary in this. We're, I, we've started recently in our church a, a study with a few boys from a university close by. And we're going through a little booklet, some of you may know it, called Two Ways to Live. And these two ways to live essentially are that we live under the lordship of Christ or we reject his lordship and we try to act as our own kings. This is, I think, a, a helpful reminder even for us who have heard the gospel, because we can hear that and it's like, okay. But then practically, day to day, we live as if there's not two ways to live, either under the lordship of Christ or rejecting the lordship of Christ, but like there's a third way. Okay, there's these people over here, they're worshiping idols, they're doing who knows what. I'm not part of that group. And there's these people over here that are part of the church and they're really on fire, born again, living for the Lord. And I'm... In, somewhere in the middle. There's a third way. I'm not, I'm not like those people, but I'm not quite like these people either. There's not three ways that we can live. It's not either reject God and be under His wrath, or live for God, live for His smile, or something kind of in the middle. It's just halfway. There's no halfway option. We either belong to the world belong to the darkness that he talks about in verse 9, or we belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Don't grow weary in this. The New Testament calls us over and over to be alert, to be watchful. Keep each other mindful of what time it is. 
We are looking for the return of Jesus. We need to be living in a way that demonstrates who we are. Now, not only are me and you foreigners here, not only are we sojourners and exiles, as it says, but we're in enemy territory. We have an enemy who is seeking to make war against our souls. How does he do this? He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, to stay away from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The enemy is fighting against us with lust and with temptation, with desires, with discontentment, with sin. He is waging war against our soul, seeking to destroy us. If we forget where we are, we're going to be wide open to attack. But if we're mindful, daily reminding ourselves, daily reminding one another that we're strangers and foreigners here, that we are in enemy territory to be watchful, to be looking out, the enemy's still going to come against us. He's still going to try and attack us. He's still going to bring lust and temptation into our lives but we're going to be ready for it. He says, stay away from these things. The tools of the enemy, stay away from them. If we go downstairs or to a shop nearby, if someone goes and they ask for cigarettes, what's on the packet? There's a picture, right? A picture of cancer. Now, if... I was tempted to go and to buy some cigarettes. When I see that disgusting, horrifying picture, I put it away. Why am I going to do this? Right? This is going to kill me. The picture is there to tell you this causes cancer. If you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. So, seeing that, we stay away. I don't want my mouth or my neck or my lungs to look like that. Right? So, that is a helpful reminder to me. Don't smoke cigarettes. We need to remember when lusts are coming against us, when temptation is assailing us, when we're discontent, when we're seeing how other people are living and we're wanting some of those things that they have. In your mind, summon that picture. This isn't going to cause lung cancer or mouth cancer or throat cancer, whatever. This is soul cancer. The enemy is attacking us with these lusts and temptations. He's waging war against them. Set this image in your mind. The sin that you're struggling with. Young men fighting against lust. People giving in to fear. I can't trust God in this thing. I'm too afraid of what might happen. So I have to protect myself. I have to erect this wall that's going to protect me. I can't trust God in this situation. Giving in to temptations to fear. Looking on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, seeing pictures of everybody else's perfect life and feeling like my life is 
miserable. Look at this picture of these people's kids. They're clean and well-dressed and everybody's smiling. And I know what my kids look like at home. Why can't my family be like their family? Meanwhile, those people are looking at somebody else's Instagram and saying, oh, look, we just dress up nice for a picture every now and then, but look at their kids. They're always looking like this. We're discontent. We're feeling like, I wish my life, I wish I had the things that those people had. I wish my family was like that person's family. I wish that our marriage was like their marriage. We're discontent, never happy with what the Lord's given us. All of these are lusts and temptations which are waging war against our soul. We're going in like lambs to the slaughter, unaware that we're in enemy territory, somebody fighting against us, seeking to destroy us. Stay away from these things. Set the image, this cigarette pack, set that image in your mind. Whatever temptation the, the enemy is attacking you with, remember, what is this going to do to me? Why is this temptation coming against me? The enemy is seeking to destroy me. This is the very thing we see Solomon advising his son on in Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to read a few verses for us. You can turn there. You can look at it later. I would encourage all of you, particularly young men, to meditate on this passage. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 and then 21 to 27. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. 6 to 20, he's describing what is this adulterous woman like. What are these lustful temptations like? We'll pick it back up in verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. How? As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. When these lusts assail you, when this temptation comes, remember What's happening? If I give myself to this, I'm thinking maybe just a little bit. Just, I, you know, there's a line somewhere, but I'll just go right up to that line. We're going like an ox is going to the slaughter, like a deer is moving forward, not knowing that the arrow of the hunter is about to pierce its liver, like a bird flying into a snare, not knowing it's going to cost it its life. Beloved, we who are a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, now live as strangers, as foreigners, as sojourners, as exiles in this world in enemy territory. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you are. But these tools, these weapons of the enemy, which he uses to wage war against our soul, stay far away. 
This is not a game to see how close we can get. Stay far away. But, as we think back to this task which the Lord has given us as His new people, we who were once not a people and now have become the people of God, we who once had not received mercy but now have received mercy, as we think back to that task, God's done this, transfers it out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's done it for a purpose that we might proclaim. We need to remember this purpose even as we remember that we are sojourners, exiles, foreigners in enemy, enemy territory. If all we think is, God's given me a job and I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it all, forgetting who we are and where we are, the enemy can easily assail us with lust, temptation, discontentment. Or if on the other side, we remember, okay, I am as God's new people, a stranger in a foreign land. I'm in enemy territory, so I'm just going to hunker down, gather with the church, and we're just going to keep our heads down, stay safe, and try to not die in this fight. We're going to forget the task which the Lord has given us. God's Word brings these, thing to, these things together in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does Gentile mean? When, you, when we come across this word, we see it all over the Bible. What's it mean? What's a Gentile? Yeah? Okay, so actually here, that is what it means. It's someone who does not know God. But has a more usual, more correct meaning most of the time. What is it? Someone who's not a Jew, right? There's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. Uh, as you guys, I know you've been looking at Ephesians chapter 2. You see there's these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and God has broken down that dividing wall, thus making one new people. Here, Peter, if we, if we look at, at the beginning of chapter 1, who he's writing to, the places that he's writing to, we can understand these are Gentile believers. These aren't Jews predominantly that he's writing to. But he speaks of them because they're the people of God. He's saying, you're Israel. You're God's chosen people, and now you're surrounded by the Gentiles, spiritually speaking. None of us in this room are Jews. None of us, I can say with some degree of confidence, have any Jewish heritage. But we're God's chosen people. But when we step outside, when we talk to our neighbors, when we talk to our coworkers, we're living among people that don't know God. We're living among people who don't worship Jesus as the king. speaking of them as the Gentiles, the people who don't know God, who don't have his revelation. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, as God's new people, we live holy lives. Why? For the glory of God and for the salvation 
of our friends, our neighbors, our family members. We ought to be proclaiming the gospel. That's the purpose for which the Lord has saved us and living in a way that adorns the gospel, that shows what the gospel does, the fruit that it bears in a person's life. We don't start with a bunch of commands. Okay, now you're a Christian where, where we live. Often if someone's trying to figure out who is this person, where do they fit, they'll ask, what meat do you eat? Do you eat only fish? No meat at all? Do you eat beef? Do you eat pork? And then depending on the answer to that, they'll say, okay, you know, now we know, we can understand. When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean before you ate only chicken and now you can also eat beef. I d- it does mean that, but that's not, the, that's not what it's about. The Bible doesn't come to us saying, okay, before you had this set of rules. And now you have this set of rules, and that's the difference. Their rules are worthless, and these rules are good. But what we do is we're planting the gospel in our life. We're sowing the gospel in one another's lives, and the gospel itself, this message of who God is, of what he's done for us in Christ, this bears fruit. This results in holy lives. Now he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we're sharing, if we're talking about coworkers, neighbors, family members, about what God has done for us, I'll say, yeah, you know, I know about Christians. Christians do this and they do that. They're just like us. It's just a different thing. They'll speak against you. They'll speak against me. They'll speak against us. Yeah, this is what Christians do. You know, they say this, but they're just like everybody else. They're lying and they're stealing. They're cheating. But when they speak against us, as we proclaim the gospel, as we live holy lives, sometimes they'll look and see, we've been making all these accusations. Christians are like this, 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 this. But when we look at the lives of these people, it's not like that. They'll speak against us as evildoers, but as we proclaim the gospel, we, we also seek to live holy lives among them, honorable lives among them, living above reproach in any way so that even as they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds. They may see the fruit that the gospel bears in the life of a saved sinner, and so glorify God on the day of visitation. God, in his grace, through Jesus, has taken us. We who were belonging to darkness, as we see here, we who were far off, we who were dead in trespasses and sins by nature, children of wrath, God has taken us, and he has saved us, Not because we were good or smart or wise or pursuing good works, acting in righteousness, but only because of his grace, his love towards us in Christ. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, he has made us a new people. He's made us a new people for his own possession, for his glory, that we may now, as his new people, proclaim what he's done, proclaim the power of his salvation to the people around us, and he's done it so that even as we live here, 
having had our citizenship transferred from the domain of death to the kingdom of heaven, now as strangers, exiles, foreigners here, that we would live and speak in such a way that results in people around us seeing God, seeing His goodness, and turning to trust in Him. You are a foreigner in enemy territory. Live like it. Remember that. If you were alone, the one foreigner in enemy territory, it would be easy for the enemy take, to take you down. But now you have a family, an army to walk together to fight this fight. The only way that we can make it home is together. Remember who you are. Remember what the Lord has done. And remember where he has placed you and the work that he has given us to do. Let's pray. Father, you are so rich and generous and kind and merciful towards us in Christ. God, we are not worthy of these things. We're not worthy of the grace which you have shown us. And we're not able in our own strength to speak in a way that's profitable. We're not able in our own strength and wisdom to live lives that bring you glory. God, we thank you for your rich provision for us in your word that you've given us to instruct us, to teach us, to shape us, to guide us. We thank you for the incredible gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit who is with us, able to strengthen us, able to take our weakness and make it strength. God, we thank you that as you have, have adopted us as sons, you've adopted us into a family, given us brothers and sisters here to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us. Lord, help us to remember these things, what you've done for us, how you've made us a new people, how you have bought us, transferred our citizenship into heaven. Lord, help us now to live as foreigners, as exiles, as sojourners in an enemy land, that you would be glorified by us as we speak the truth of the gospel to those around us and as we live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to do this for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.